Hello and welcome to Soul Self, where we talk all things energy, consciousness, trauma healing, mindset manifesting, and more. Prepare to turn your pain into medicine and inspiration so you can be in alignment, living your purpose, having juicy relationships, and lush abundance. To stay up to date, join my newsletter at bloomshakti.com and make sure to browse some of my other offerings. Here we go, Sacred Sexuality Part 2, and this time we are going to be diving into Tantric Arts. So by no means am I going to be able to get in depth, but there are some really important themes in Tantra, especially as they relate to Tantra as a means for sexual exploration and what we consider the sexual arts. So that's what I want to dive into. So what is Tantra? Tantra is, literally it means to weave together, right? Last week, I talked about the Tao. The Tao literally meaning the way. So it is a way of living a balanced life. If we're talking about Tantra, we're talking about the way that life, the entire fabric of life, is woven together. We're all woven together and connected through what you might even visualize as a net, right? How a net is various, you know, it has various cords woven together and connected. So that's what Tantra means in its essence. It's a system by which we break free of Maya. When we talk about Maya from Buddhist perspective, we're talking about illusion. We're talking about the world, The world by which we see it, which we receive our internal environment and our external environment, and the ways in which Maya is a form of illusion. There are certain things about life, the way we navigate through life, that aren't real in the way that we believe them to be. So many of our experiences are a result of our perception So when we talk about breaking free of Maya, we are talking about breaking free of ignorance, breaking free of ego, and beginning to see the world as something that is inherently interconnected, that we depend on, that we're a part of, and also experiencing that world through a compassionate mind and a compassionate heart. So Tantra is Hindu and Buddhist in origin. When we talk about Tantra, um, so Tantra has been received in the West in more recent decades. And the way that we try to digest Tantra in the West is based off our Western paradigm. It's based off the way we understand things through Western perspective. So it's very hard for a lot of Westerners to grasp the idea of Tantra in essence because we're constantly thinking and navigating through ideas with the Western paradigm. So the things that we understand about sex, love, pleasure, health, spirituality, and in order for us to really receive Tantra or even any non-Western, non-contemporary school of thought, this includes Taoism, If we're going to begin to receive these in their most authentic form, we have to shift paradigms a little bit. We have to be willing to broaden ourselves, 
to concepts that are not contemporary, that aren't Western in origin. So when we're talking about Tantra, I want to bring up this idea of Tantra and Sutra. If you're familiar with Buddhism and you're familiar with some of the concepts of the Buddha, the Buddha practiced um, or inscripted his knowledge in what are known as sutras. Sutras can be understood as scriptures, but they can be understood as forms of thought. The way that we understand and navigate through life, right? Sutra is, in essence, a form of renunciation. When we talk about Buddha, we hear this narrative of a man who lived his life in a palace and went out into the world and seen suffering for the first time. And he was overwhelmed by this experience of acknowledging the suffering in life. So the Buddha then began to renunciate, right? To let go of the things that tie his ego to the world, the things that continue to make him ignorant to the world. So this idea that we want to abstain from overindulgence because indulgence in essence leads to overconsumption, blinds us to, it blinds us and it allows us to be more captivated by what we can have, right? Instant gratification. And when we talk about renunciation, it's similar to Christian Judeo-Christian ideologies of the fact that you should abstain from worldly pleasure or abstain from worldly things, indulging in alcohol, partying, reckless sex, all these things that lead to ego, anger, that we should renunciate those things so that we can actually attain enlightenment for Christians and so that we can maintain sovereignty and so that Christians can essentially go to heaven. But for the Buddhists, it's really to attain Buddhahood or enlightenment. And that's something that you see a lot of themes of in Buddhism in the sutras is the idea that enlightenment is achieved over many lifetimes. It takes many lifetimes for us to enter this place of spiritual enlightenment. So how does this relate to Tantra, right? When the Buddha wrote down his scriptures, and mind you, it was most likely not the Buddha as we know him, as the historical figure that wrote down these Buddhist texts, but the people that came after him that wrote these sutras. During this time, there were already, of course, Hindus. Remember, Buddhism is Indian. And the Buddha was already exposed to Hindu thought. Hindu forms of thoughts. We think of Buddhism, I think most people automatically think of China, right? We have Hindu Buddhism, we have Indian Buddhism, Indian Buddhism, and that actually spread and made its way into Tibet, China, and then of course Japan. You have Zen Buddhism, but it's actually Indian in origin. So during the time of the creation of these sutras or these scriptures, um, there, there was a sect of Buddhists who were known as Mahasiddhas. And these people were nomads. So if you've seen at this time people who were practicing the way of Buddha, that they were practicing a life of renunciation, that we might consider these people monastery Buddhists, right? People who abstain from sex, who fast, who meditate, and 
they leave this very refined, they live this very refined lifestyle. So we have a creation or this movement of people during this time called Mahasiddhas who understood Buddhism through Tantra, not Sutra. And Tantra is the idea that enlightenment is now. It doesn't take a hundred lifetimes to achieve enlightenment. In fact, one person can experience enlightenment in the fraction of a second and that it can exist in a moment, in a single moment. So through the tantric perspective, enlightenment is now. Enlightenment is now and it can be achieved now. And this is done through the process of transformation. So if sutra is about renunciation, abstaining from worldly things, tantra is about embracing that which is natural, sex being part of it, food being part of it, socialization being part of it, and taking these things not to continue to keep us blind, but to open up our eyes so that we can use things like sex as a means for transformation because they're natural. So a lot of people, most people have sexual urges, sexual nature, sexual self, and ways that we express our sexuality. So those are the biggest principles when we're talking about differentiating between sutra and tantra and how tantra actually came to be a school of thought that enlightenment can be achieved now and we can do this by the process of transformation of the things that we indulge in every single day. So that's why tantra is not about sex and a lot of times the western world we perceive it as like oh tantric sex, tantric sex and we use it as a synonym for spiritual sexuality. And yes and no, right? It's not an umbrella term for all forms of erotology, but Tantra as a spiritual and really, in a lot of ways, religious system provides a means for understanding sexuality. So sex is a part of it. And of course, when we receive this information as Westerners, the first thing we adhere to, the first thing that catches our attention is sex. And then we just love the idea of sacred sexuality right? So that we can use something that is already so ingrained in our culture, but we can use it as a way that's actually spiritually illuminating for us. And that was well received by a lot of people. And even though that's what attracted us, right? Kind of like the honey that attracted us to Tantra, it doesn't represent Tantra the right way. A lot of people jump straight into sacred sacred sexual spirituality and Tantra but they are not taking time to understand what Tantra truly is. And Tantra is not perfect, okay? None of these systems are. In the way that we understand ideas, right? The ideology sounds really good, but in practice, there are things that are problematic. Certainly historically, culturally, socially, based in its time and creation, right? And I don't want anyone to like cherry pick and be like, oh, I like this from the Tao, I like this from the Tantra. But in a way, you have to have a certain level of discernment and know yourself enough to allow yourself to know which techniques are going to be beneficial for you, which ideas are beneficial for you, and how you can integrate these ideas into the beliefs that you already hold and what that's going to look like for you. So, like I said, Tantra isn't about sex. Most tantric practices don't mention sexual arts, 
But if we're talking about sexual arts, we're talking about what some people consider sexual yoga because it's a form of yoga. And that would take a whole fucking podcast to talk about of like, what is yoga? Because yoga isn't just getting on a mat and doing different asanas. That's just a part of doing yoga, but that's a very small part of doing yoga. You have to understand why do we even do asanas or postures in yoga in the first place? What are we doing them for? In the West, we use yoga as a means of physical exercise and relaxation, but what is the purpose of doing asanas in retrospect to understanding what yoga is as a way of life, right? Because you can't do yoga, you live yoga. You can't just do Buddhism. You can't just do Christianity. You live it, right? It's a way of life. But when we're talking about sexual yoga tantra, we're talking about Kama Mudra. And this is a system of sacred sexuality, tantric sexuality, as understood by Vajrayana Buddhism. So Vajrayana Buddhism is Tibetan. And once we start... So something I want you to understand is that sexual tantra is Buddhist and it is Tibetan. And Tibetan Buddhism is known as Vajrayana Vajrayana Buddhism. So that's some of the roots of understanding what the system is and what we're even practicing. Um, some more foundation. There is a variety of tantric texts and a variety of schools of thought of Tantra and of itself. So I don't want you to get lost in all the different schools of thoughts because there's many networks, there's many branches as far as different practices throughout time and space. And what I want us to focus on is the bigger picture kind of stuff. Um, sexual Tantra uses transformative transformative um, nature. The transformative nature of sexual energy to achieve what is known as bliss. Bliss is a concept that is talked about a lot in Tantra, right? In Hinduism as well. And when we're talking about bliss, achieving bliss, it's something that's really interesting to get into because what are some of the things in the West that we achieve, that we want to achieve? Something that is a theme for the life of the contemporary lifestyle that we live is this idea of happiness, right? In this life, you should be happy. Happiness is something that we want to attain above all things. Money can't make you happy. People can't make you happy. All these things can't make you happy. You have to create a sense of happiness. But for a second, let's understand that happiness is an emotion. Joy is an emotion. Just like sometimes we feel angry. Sometimes we feel anxious. Sometimes we feel worried. Joy is one of those emotions. It's an emotion that we experience. This idea of being happy 24-7 all the time is not really something that can be attained or should be desired to be attained because we are complex humans. And grief, worry, these are all part of the emotions. Anger, these are all parts of, these are emotions that flow through our body. And the way that those emotions are stored in the body, right? Like proper smooth flow of these emotions are very important. But I want to bring us back to this idea of happiness, that we're going to achieve happiness in this lifetime, that you should be happy. What is a better way to understand this is that in this life, we shouldn't try to be happy all the time. What we should be trying to achieve is peace, 
peaceful mind, inner peace, because peace is actually different than happiness, joy, right? This expression of I'm excited, I'm happy, I'm joyous. It's my wedding day. I just had a baby. I just made a million dollars. Like, you know, that's happiness. Like happiness is different than peace, right? Peace is more of this idea. It's a longevity. It's a state of being. You may not always be happy, but we should attain a sense of peacefulness. This is a theme that you see even biblically. The Bible doesn't tell you you're going to be happy every day. What it tells you is that you will be content in the Lord, right? That you will be content in the life that you're living. So we're talking about peacefulness. We're talking about being content. It brings us to this idea of bliss. What is bliss? What is blissfulness? In these moments in life that you might even experience blissfulness in a in the blink of an eye, it's when the wind, the breeze is hitting you just right. When you feel so good and the sun is shining down on you and you feel the warmth, you're breathing clean air and you feel the earth beneath your, beneath your feet and you feel the love in your heart. And for a moment, you understand what life's about. It's not this cognitive understanding. It's an inner energetic and spiritual understanding where you're connected with the world around you and you're connected with self. Even if that moment is just a second, it feels so invigorating. So think about those moments in your life where you have felt blissfulness. It doesn't necessarily mean happiness. It could bring about emotions of happiness and joy. But we're talking about this idea of using our environment around us to create bliss, inner peace, third eye open kind of deal where we're seeing the world for what it is. And we see it through this very compassionate lens. So aside from this idea of bliss, not aside, but I mean, truly bliss is the goal, right? We're getting more into Hindu practices. You talk about the goal of Buddhahood or the goal of Nirvana. So these places that we're going to ascend to after death in this lifetime, you know, after this lifetime, it's ascension. So that's the idea of bliss, right? We're doing these practices to lead to blissfulness. It's a means to ble- uh, leading to blissfulness. Another theme that's really important to tantric foundations and what we work with, right, is kundalini. What the hell is kundalini, right? So sometimes it comes up as, um, like in the Western world, right, you might hear some yoga talk yoga teachers talking about kundalini when they're talking about chakras but kundalini is really the purpose of kundalini is the ascension process which is through the chakras up the central channel and i want you to keep that in mind keep that idea in your mind but i'm going to dive in deeper in a little bit So kundalini up the chakras through the main channel, okay? Another important foundation is this idea that tantra is not a means for lust, for love, or for sensuality, which is very interesting because when we talk about tantra a little bit or people start getting into tantric arts, they start calling the Kama Sutra, you know, the lovemaking manual. Some people refer to this as... um, 
you know, like honestly, the Kama Sutra is not Tantra. But when we think about Tantra in the West, we automatically think of sensuality. That is a means to connect with our sensual energy. Yes, Tantra is a means by which you will connect with your sensual energy. But it is not, not created for the purpose of enhancing one's sexuality or even sensuality. It is created for the purpose of enhancing your compassion, your awareness, and your divinity. It has nothing to do with love, lust, or feeling sexy, even though you will incorporate these practices into your love life, as you should, because you should share them with the people that you love. And of course, it'll enhance your sensuality because your sensual energy is a powerful creative force that can really only be utilized to its full potential once you start to embrace self and once you start to embrace your internal and external environment, right? So yes, these things can lead to a better relationship with love and sensuality, but that's not the reason we do them. We do them for the greater, the broader collective purpose of drawing compassion, enhancing our awareness, or our blissful mind, which is called Bodhivistana. And also, I just want to touch on chakras a little bit. So in the Western world, the way we see chakras, it is actually, they're not Tantra. They're not traditional ways that we understand the chakras, right? Not through the Tantric text. And a lot of times in the West, we have crystal therapies, right? Different crystals being placed on your chakras, oils, other homeopathic remedies. And I want you to understand what this is. This is Westerners receiving Tantra and incorporating the things that we practice, especially Western occult paganism, right? We associate planets with the chakras, plants with the chakras. We associated our own emotions with the chakras because we received chakra theory, and integrated it into our Western occult paradigm. So that's where you get all these ideas that you can use different crystals and this chakra, you know, if you can't speak up, work on your, if you can't speak, work on your throat chakra, or, you know, the idea that even chakras are out of alignment. These are Western ideas. It's not invalid. It's just not Tantra. So when we're talking about the chakras from a more traditional perspective, the chakras are visualized as what? Petal lotuses, right? So it's really important to understand why each petal actually represents a virtue or a struggle and of itself and that these chakras were used and oftentimes associated with different deities and that by the means of meditating on a chakra, People were opening up their chakras to deities. That's the purpose of it. It's not like, oh, I want to feel more love and compassion. I'm trying to insert a chakra rana in my heart. I'm trying to open up my chakra to pranic energy. I'm opening my chakra or visualizing my chakra to ascend kundalini. So these are the purposes. And that is what I do. I incorporate pranic healing with Reiki. And of course, I do the Western stuff. But my knowledge goes so much deeper because I grew up with the tantric way of knowing everything. And something that's associated with the chakras, especially the five chakra system, is this idea of kayas. And this is like, this is a concept I'm still getting familiar with myself, right? Like this 
idea of Kai and the way that we understand the virtues of the chakras and what the chakras are for. So the five chakra system, we're talking about the base chakra, root chakra, muladhara chakra. We work with the navel chakra, the heart, the throat, and the head chakra. The head chakra is the third eye chakra. And what about the crown chakra, right? Interestingly enough, the crown chakra is not really a chakra. It's very different. It's not an energy wheel. It's the space by which we ascend into spiritual enlightenment. So a chakra runs through the body and is pierced by kundalini. It runs along the main channel, the shushumana channel. So the crown chakra does not... It's The crown chakra is the home of the kundalini. When the kundalini reaches the crown chakra from the root chakra... We've now pierced, this is the main channel, and with this sacred energy, and we have now opened up the top of the head, right? Because even in the Tao, right, we talked about the Dantian and receiving heavenly energy, cosmic energy. Through the feet, we receive yin energy, earth energy, and through the head, we receive cosmic energy. And in the Tao, we stand between heaven and earth. So same concept, going from a lower state, rising to a higher state through Kundalini and piercing the, those chakras. So the kayas that are associated with the chakras, if we're really going to associate emotions and virtues with the chakras, we have the base chakra, the root chakra, which is all kayas, so everything that follows. Then you have the navel chakra, which is... The kaya of suchness. So suchness is a Buddhist concept that is a little bit difficult to grasp. It's embodying all things real. That it's not really having a real like physical body, but it's embodying all things experienced. So it's a form of suchness. And we would really, I would have to like dive deep into this and what it means. But it's harder to understand it from in English and a Western mind, right? Because these things weren't even written in English and it's not for the Western mind, but this idea of embracing of all that exists is suchness. So the heart chakra is associated with, the heart chakra is associated with Dharmakaya, right? The truth body, it's the truth of spirit, that kind of body. And we're talking about Kai, the Kai is, different forms of the body that are manifested through a chakra. So we have the truth body, which is the mutual understanding of truth from spirit to spirit. We have symbol gakaya, which resonates with the throat. And that's the enjoyment body. And it doesn't necessarily mean in enjoyment in the way that we understand it. It means that this is the body, the energetic body that exists without existing. So what does that mean? It's the people that you see in your dreams, astral bodies, spiritual bodies, in the sense that I'm not physically real, but I'm real. And aside from our physical selves, there's a realness to us that is of spirit, and that's resonating with the throat chakra. Then we have Nirmanakaya, which is associated with the head, the space of the head or the third eye, which is the Buddha body. That is the physical Buddha body, the way that we people would see Buddha and receive him in the physical plane. 
if that was his Buddha body. He is the Buddha and he is in this body, therefore it's his Buddha body. So it's this understanding that Kai is Kai are these ranges of the body that we have and how they're manifested in the chakras. I don't expect anyone to grasp this concept the first time that I'm even talking about it. You might have to listen to this podcast again. But I just want you to get familiar with the language when I talk about authentic experience of the chakras and what that means and hearing these words for the first time, see, you know, and really think like, what does this mean? Right? Because it's different than what we see on Instagram or YouTube or even in our regular yoga class where our yoga talk, yoga teachers talk about chakras. So a little more about Kundalini. Kundalini means sacred fire right? Sacred fire, it's associated with the Muladhara chakra, and it's also associated with the fire pit for cremation, for sacrifice. So it's the sacred fire energy. Sometimes when people talk about kundalini or they talk about kundalini yoga, what does that mean? Like what is kundalini? And sometimes people, you know, they'll say things like awaken your kundalini, which is interesting wording because kundalini Kundalini is not asleep. Your Kundalini is active. Kundalini is an active source of energy that is awakened from your time of birth and dies when you die or you die when your Kundalini dies, when it runs out of this energetic, young energy. And the sacred fire, this Kundalini energy it sits and it's housed in the root chakra low at the base of the spine near the groin and this gives us life it drives us through life all things have kundalini kundalini is a universal energy our kundalini just so happens to sit at the base of the spine when you experience kundalini your kundalini sits at the hips and as you navigate through life your kundalini dissipates outward towards the hips and it's exhausted throughout your whole life. The purpose of a lot of tantric tantric practices is to conserve kundalini, so stopping it from dissipating so quickly, stopping the overconsumption of kundalini first of all, and then ascend kundalini, which is similar to some of the Taoist practices Right When I talk about the Ren Mai and Du Mai channel, conserving the chi, circulating the chi, a lot of these practices are based off of energetic conservation. First of all, stop wasting and dissipating your inner energy. And second of all, start using it for the means of transformation because you're not using it. You're not putting it to work. You're not transforming it. So when we talk about Kundalini, we're talking about this transformative sacred fire, this energetic fire that sits at the hips. And our goal is to raise it, raise Kundalini, conserve and raise and ascend it up so that it literally animates us. So by nature, it wishes to arise up the channels. And if you look at any illustrations you see an energy that goes down from, it rises up from the base upwards towards the crown chakra. So what we're doing is we're using the mind, the ability of the mind to connect with kundalini and raise kundalini up. 
And this can be done during sexual alchemy or sexual practices, right? Sacred sexuality, which is why we talk about it because they wouldn't be doing it if they didn't believe that it could lead to energetic and psycho-spiritual benefits. So something that's important is this idea that the descent of Kundalini is a deceiver. When we're not raising Kundalini, when we allow Kundalini to dissipate, when we allow Kundalini to dissipate, we don't activate Kundalini. Kundalini thickens the veil. It thickens the veil on our ability to reach out and connect because we're using it in a way that's strictly worldly, strictly carnal. So when Kundalini is stagnant or descending, it worsens our condition. But in its ascent, Kundalini is a revealer. And it's a sense of raising Kundalini, allowing us to open our eyes energetically. So it's very important that we talk about Kundalini. And a lot of this, it's very similar to the Tao, right? We're studying sacred sex, we're talking about sacred sexuality, and sex is a part of it, but this is the foundation. Getting familiar with the energetic anatomy and understanding why do we partake in such practices. It's actually very important. So I also want to dive into Tigle. Tigle is... <laughs> I could probably do a whole podcast on this too. Um, the practice of Tigle is inherent to Kama Mudra, inherent to sacred sexuality. Tigle is the essential refined subtle energy keyword refined. It's the purest form of energy that exists in the body. So if we think about prana, the energy that flows throughout the whole body, think of prana as the house. Prana is the house. So if prana is the house, thigle is the precious jewels that you keep locked away in the house in their own sacred space. And their own secret little chest. So we have this energetic house of prana. And in that prana, we have something very refined and very precious and small. Very, very small in comparison to the largeness of the house. So when we work with Tigle, this pure refined energy, we are inserting the consciousness so that we can resonate and understand pure Buddhahood. The essence of the Thigle is pure Buddhahood or God consciousness. Okay? God consciousness. So Thigle is visualized, again, just like the chakras. We're visualizing it, working with it through inner meditation using the mind. And it's usually understood or visualized as a symbol. If you're not familiar with the symbol... It's difficult to visualize it um, strongly enough for your meditation. But what we can do instead of visualizing the symbol for Tigle when we're working with it is visualizing a droplet, just like a water droplet instead. And the color of the water droplet is a bright and vibrant turquoise. Now this Tigle sits in the center of the chest in on the main channel and that's Tigle T-H-I-G-L-E so if you want you can google the symbol 
but it sits on the main channel. And if the Thigla is running in the main channel, right, then if it's right between the breasts, right, on the main channel, which is the Ren channel, it's not the Shishuma, but similarly enough, it runs along the center of the body. And we have this pure Thigla that sits right in the middle of the chest in men and women. It's actually reversed, but we have two more Thiglas. A red thigla that sits in the genitals, and then a white thigla that sits in the head. When we partake in sex, the essence of our thigla can combine with the essence of another thigla, and we can take and we can receive. We talked a little bit about this last podcast, right? The idea of saibu. The practice of taking the essence in, right, from someone else. Very similar concept. When the thigla ascends and descends, right, we can begin to dip into somebody else's thigla during the act, during sexual intercourse. So another part to Tantra is Jana Mudra, which is a Kama Mudra technique, right? It's a sexual yoga technique. And it's the visualization and meditation of tantric, divine, sexual union. So we are basically meditating on a sexual experience. We are meditating, visualizing, step-by-step, detail for detail, a divine sexual experience. And the sexual experience that we're visualizing, it's going to be different than if we're just going to imagine what it's like to have sex with a regular person, right? Somebody that we're attracted to, or even somebody that we love, like boyfriend and girlfriend. Because what's happening is that we are visualizing ourselves, firstly, as divine, perfect, without flaw. So this is a practice, and you visualize a perfect divine match. So you exist in a space of divinity, which is called the Ram Visualization. There's many forms of it, but this is one, just visualizing yourself as a goddess, okay, as a goddess and knowing what that means, right? Internalizing emotionally what that means for you. And then we are seeing and envisioning our divine pair, our divine pair, someone who is extraordinarily divinely beautiful, respectful, strong, and compassionate and you go through the visualization, right? Visualizing yourself as the divine goddess or God. Once the process begins visualizing the sexual union, you go through the stages, the four stages of sexual yoga. Tawa, which is looking. Gopa, which is talking and laughing. Kupa, or rakpa, which is both used as a means of understanding embrace and touch, but also self-touch, which is masturbation. And then jurwa, which is uniting, most likely talking about oral and penetrative vaginal sex. So these are the steps by which we would practice this idea of kama mudra, of sexual yoga. And this is one system that's used, and it's a very, very powerful meditation. Why? Why? 
First, we're envisioning ourselves as being divine. We see the goddess, our goddess, the way that she looks. And when we go into a visualization of how our divine goddess looks, it's not a form of vanity. Yes, we're going to focus on the beauty that we radiate, of course, but it's not about vanity. So when you envision your goddess, don't envision the body that you want. Like, this is what I wish I'd look like. Envision you because it is you. Envision all of you from head to toe. And we're going to fall in love with that and discover how divine that is. Discover how beautiful that is. So we're not creating this worldly idea of what we think beauty looks like. We're going into what cosmic beauty looks like. We're going into what divine beauty looks like because you are divinely beautiful now, right? So we need to draw on these physical bodies that we have as inspiration for our inner beauty and as we envision our divine goddess we can envision our divine mate and that's why we do these techniques because we're bringing our mind to a place of pure bliss pure pleasure and the upside of these techniques is that in a lot of ways they mentally program you for pleasure because once you start meditating on your divine self and once you start meditating on a divine partner Your standards in the boudoir will be raised. Your understanding of pleasure will be enhanced. And you fall in love with the subtleties of your beauty in a way that is so intimately you because it's coming entirely from you. So you want to do this using the power of your mind as opposed to watching porn, right? So it's all coming from self. It's all coming from self. This is a very powerful technique. So try it out. And I'm actually going into a session. So that's where I'll end it today. But as always, please make sure to screenshot and post it on Instagram. Tag me so more people can find me. And also, I would really appreciate the energy exchange of you doing an Apple podcast review. It took you longer to listen to this than it'll take you to do a review. So please and thank you. And until next week, I love you all. Take care. Welcome to Soul Self. I'm your host, Shayna, a mindset coach and master energy healer here to provide a conscious view and tools on navigating goddess spirituality. Here we discuss all things love, sex, relationships, mindset, manifesting confidence, and more. So you can live an abundant, stress-free life full of pleasure and be the woman that lights up a room. Hope this was insightful and you're feeling empowered. I would appreciate if you could do an Apple podcast review. Takes less than 15 seconds. Forward and share this with anyone you feel would benefit. Tag me on Instagram and I will talk to you soon.